Amen. If you want to grab your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 6, we're going to pick up where we left off a couple weeks ago. We're working verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke. And uh, what we're seeing here in Luke's Gospel is an upside-down kingdom. You know, a lot of the things that we're reading just don't make sense from a human perspective. There's not, they're not what we would expect to find. And so uh, we've seen that in Luke chapter 6 multiple times as we've worked through these various passages and, and, and stories here. And it's going to continue here even in what we're going to look at this morning. But I want to tell you a story about two individuals, a married couple, Don and Sally are their names. Don and Sally are believers, and they had at one time been very involved, extremely faithful to their local church. These two people uh, had both trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior there in high school, and, and for them, their conversion experience was uh, traumatic. I mean, it was a radical type of, of conversion. Both of them came from a home, a background that was, uh, I guess, best explained as agnostic, uh, worse as atheistic. They had really no concept, knew nothing about Christ, knew nothing of his church. And so when they met Jesus, when they heard the gospel and believed on Christ, everything changed for them. They turned from their sin, and, and they began to follow Jesus, and they began to passionately follow Jesus. That taste that they once had had for the things of the world was now replaced with a, with a true hunger, a, a true thirst for righteousness. They loved sharing the gospel with their friends. They loved telling the story of what the Lord had done and was doing in them personally. They loved serving through their church. These high school sweethearts went off to college together, and there in college they got married. They began to build a Christian home there in those college years. During those years, they were very involved in the collegiate ministry on their campus. They were involved in, in, in members in a local church there in that city. And then after graduation, they took a job, or uh, they moved because of uh, work, and moved to where they now live, and joined a vibrant, gospel-centered church. And for years, they raised their children. They raised their family there in that local church and served in numerous ways. Unfortunately for them, things began to change. Things began to slip. The passion that they once exhibited for the things of God began to slowly and subtly dissipate. And as a result, their church attendance, their church involvement began to steadily slip as well. The leadership of the church, the members of their small group, began to notice this, and they began to be concerned. They even noticed that Don and Sally no longer displayed the same sort of passionate affection toward one another that they once did in years past. Something was noticeably different in their relationship. Pastors wanted to help. The members of their small group wondered how they could step in. They all saw the signs of destruction there on the horizon, and wanted to step in and help, deeply concerned. They're heartbroken over the situation. You can only imagine the fear that they had for their friends and for their fellow brothers and sisters. They, at the same time, feared stepping in. They wondered what they would, how they would be perceived if they tried to step into the situation and, and, and say, hey, uh, I noticed some things, or why has church attendance not been at the forefront of, uh, of your life and of your schedule as in years past? And so they began to think and wonder if they pride in this situation, would it actually run them off from the church or sever their friendships? The back of all of their minds was this fear of confronting Dawn and Sally because in doing so, they would be committing in our culture the most heinous of crimes. You see, in our culture today, it's immoral to speak into the life of another person because how is it that we can know that person's heart? And so, because we can't know their heart, we have no moral authority to speak into their life situation. This cultural idea comes from Luke 6.37, which I believe is the, uh, has become the Magna Carta of American culture in many ways. 
Today, there are so many people who might not be able to recite a Bible verse. They might not be able to tell you that the Bible has two testaments, an old and a new. But if they sense any inclination that you would speak into their life and call a sin a sin or speak into a situation and say, that's no longer good, it's bad, they would immediately jump to, judge not, lest you be judged. Condemn not, and you won't be condemned. I wonder in that, as I contemplate our culture and our tendency to push back against anyone who would speak into our lives, I I wonder, is there no room for judgment at all in our culture? Is there no room for judgment in our relationships? Is there no room for judgment in our families? I mean, do we have the moral authority to look at our kids in the face and when little Johnny's not acting the way little Johnny should act, do we have the moral authority to say that's bad, you shouldn't do that. Do we relate to our friends like that? Do we have the moral authority to step in? In the church, do we have the moral authority, the spiritual authority to step in and say, what you're doing is not right, it's dangerous? Our culture would say no, unless it's in a certain parameter that's okay. But I wonder, does the Bible not also say, along with judge not lest you be judged, does it not also say in Proverbs 27, 6, listen to this, the wounds of a friend are faithful, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Think about that. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So can we not, or should we not make judgments and, and seek to speak into the situations that are not good? Honestly, it seems impossible for me as I think about this, even this week contemplating it, uh, this idea of where is the moral authority in our culture today to call something good that's good and something bad that's bad? Where is all of that? And I came to the conclusion that we make judgments all the time. I I love coffee. Um, I I love Dunkin' Donuts coffee specifically, right? I don't visit our Dunkin' Donuts all the time. I drink Dunkin' Donuts at my house. I just love their coffee. I love many other kinds of coffee. I love going overseas for a lot of reasons, but overseas coffee is good, good stuff. Amen? Uh, In fact, I try to buy it and I bring it back here and it's not the same. Uh, So I've tried to replicate what they're doing. Let's buy a French press. Let's do some things that make it right. But what do we do when we order just a simple cup of coffee? You make a judgment. You take that first sip. Hmm, this is pretty good. This is awful. This is like, a, like I'm drink, drinking from a sweaty armpit. You know, you ever had coffee like that? I just wanted to see if you're awake this morning. Some of you are awake. I've also had coffee that tasted like what I would imagine is a sweaty armpit. Never tasted that, but I can imagine because it's been awful. So we make judgments in all of the situations in our life. Now let's come to where we're at this morning in Luke chapter 6. Here in the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus is, if you remember, if you've been with us, Jesus is teaching his disciples. Specifically, he's teaching his apostles. So they've been up on the mountain. He's he's selected the 12. They've come down to the plain, and Jesus is teaching these men because they're going to carry on his ministry. He's going to leave, and these men are going to carry on the ministry through powerful signs and preaching and all that. They're going to establish the church. They're going to do all that Jesus wants them to do. So he's teaching them what it means to be a disciple maker. And part of that as we make disciples is that Jesus wants them to understand that for a disciple to walk into his faith with Jesus or walk into her faith with Jesus, correction is often necessary. You do not fall into godliness. Did you hear what I just said? You will never fall into godliness. You won't wake up one day and be like, "Woo! I look a lot like Jesus this morning. No, you're not going to do that. You fall into sinfulness. That, that's the default of your life. That's the default position of your life is to walk in sinfulness, to walk at a guilty distance from the Lord. And so we need people, we need number one, the word of God, the spirit of God, number two, and we need the people of God to come alongside of us and mold us and shape us into the image of Jesus Christ that the Lord wants us to reflect. That's what Jesus here is teaching his disciples. We're going to see that judgment is good. Judgment is good, but judgmentalism, that's bad. So let's look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 
37. Jesus says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, you will not be condemned. Forgive, you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together. Running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Disciples not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take that speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor, to, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks." So Jesus here in this Sermon on the Plain, similar to the Sermon on the Mount, is teaching us much about himself, teaching us as disciples what it means to walk with Jesus and how to make other disciples. He showed them that as a disciple, they need to be among the people. We saw last week the profile, the perspective, and even the practices that ought to be exemplary in the life of a disciple. This morning, I want you to see the disposition of a disciple. What is the disposition that we ought to have as we are interacting with, interacting with other people? There's four words that I want to use to kind of lay out this disposition that we are seeing here in this uh, pericope or this passage of scripture. The first word that I want you to think about is the word magnanimous. I don't know if you've used that word this past week. I would probably say most likely not. It's not a word that's commonly used in our vocabulary, which is sad because it's a beautiful word. But magnanimous is, is a word that's taken from a, a Latin word. The, the first word, two Latin words, I should say. The first word is the, the Latin word magnus. It means great, right? The second word is animus. It means spirit. And so the two words together in the Latin would give us the idea of literally the, the, the big spirited or great spirited or great souled. It describes a lofty spirit that is generous or forgiving, especially to one who is a rival or someone who doesn't have the power or authority of yourself. So I would agree with Arkent Hughes and what he says about this word, that it's precisely the word that the Lord ought to use to describe the disposition of a disciple. That they would be big-hearted, that they would be big-souled, that they would be forgiving and, and generous toward others. So there's three characteristics here that Jesus offers to describe this magnanimous disposition. The first one we see in verse 37 is, is the idea of being accepting. Jesus here is calling for an accepting disposition, and he uses two negative, mutually defining charges there in verse 37. Look what he says. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. These statements are two of the most misunderstood. I would say they're two of the most misapplied verses in, or statements in the Bible. And the misuse comes from the failure to understand them in the context that they're giving. And so, what, as I said earlier, what we see in our culture, what we believe in our culture about this verse is that Jesus is saying here that we have no moral authority whatsoever to call something sin. Judge not, lest you be judged. Condemn not, lest you be condemned. Is that what Jesus is saying? Contextually, we would see it's not. You read down in verses 43, 44, and 45, what does Jesus say there? He's telling us that there's judgments to be made. How do we know that? He says there's a good tree and there's a bad tree. And the good tree produces good fruit, and the bad tree produces bad fruit. Judgments are made there. So contextually, we know that Jesus is not saying what our culture is saying he's saying. Catch that? That's a lot of saying in there. What else do we know about this? Well, the Bible tells us in multiple places that judgments are normal and good. For instance, 
1 Corinthians, Paul writes a letter to the church in Corinth. He writes three letters. We have two of them in the Bible. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is pointing out all kinds of sins in the church, right? I mean, they're fighting over which apostle they're following. They're fighting over which spiritual gift is the preeminent spiritual gift. Uh, they're just making a mess. They're not treating the Lord's Supper the way they should. They're getting drunk at it, right? They're, they're gluttonous. They're, they're filling their bellies. And he says, no, eat at home. Uh, don't drink as much. When you come here, be reverent before the Lord. Don't take it haphazardly. There's a lot of sin in the life of the church at Corinth. You come to chapter 5, and you find a very egregious sin that Paul is pointing out. He looks, at, or I shouldn't say he looks, but if he was there, he would have looked at them, and he would have said, because this is what he said in the letter, there's a man in your midst that's having a sexual relationship with his father's wife, and you're celebrating it. Instead of celebrating, you ought to be remorseful, and you need to kick the guy out of the church. What's the big deal there? Well, there's a lot to talk about. The point I'm making here is Paul's making a judgment call. He's saying what he's doing and what you're doing as a church, affirming that, that's not good. It's sinful and wrong, and you need to deal with it. And so the Bible tells us over and over again that we as the body of Christ, the believers who follow Jesus, we must call sin, sin. We must judge things that are not right. In fact, he would say in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, that we will judge the world. So, this flies in the face of the cultural understanding of this verse. So, Jesus here is urging to judge not and condemn not was not a suggestion to be morally neutral. It's not a suggestion to abdicate our moral responsibility. It's not even a call for tolerance of sin in a person's life. Instead, what he's warning his disciples against is a judgmental disposition that is so easily adopted, which is seen clearly in this second characteristic that he offers. And that is, we're to be forgiving. In our magnanimous disposition, we are to be accepting, not accepting of the sin, but being temperamental as we deal with it, and forgiving. He says, forgiven, you'll be forgiven. I've told you in previous weeks, as we've looked at the Sermon on the Plain here, that what we're seeing is not Jesus preaching the gospel so that people are coming to faith in Jesus. Jesus is preaching to believers, so we need to understand that. So when he says, forgiven, you will be forgiven, this is not a prescription for how you come to faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, if I'm forgiving to the people who hurt me, I will be forgiven of my sins. That's not the way it works. Jesus is giving practical advice, practical teaching for believers who've already experienced forgiveness and now how to walk in that forgiveness as they are sinned against. Does that make sense? Practical ways to live out the forgiveness that you have experienced. Now, all of us in this room, everyone watching online, you have been sinned against at some point in your life. Someone has hurt you. Someone has harmed you. Someone has done something wrong against you. And it is many times, if not in every situation, very difficult to forgive them for it. Right? Right? I mean, you just, I say that and thoughts come to your mind. Memories come to your mind of what someone has done to you, maybe in long in the past or maybe even yesterday. And those are hard feelings to wrestle with. So what are we to do? Jesus tells us that we're to forgive. We're to be forgiving. We're to do that toward others. We're to offer that. Now, that's not easy. Many times we struggle with bitterness and hatred, even as a follower of Jesus. Many times we won't immediately forgive because of the pain, because of the severity of the offense. And yet, we know that through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, working through us, we have the ability and we will eventually forgive that person. This brings us to a third characteristics of this magnanimous disposition. He calls for us to be generous. Verse 38, he says, given it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, I don't know about you, but I've heard this, this verse here preached in the context of stewardship many times. I want you to know it has nothing to do with stewardship. 
Can you take the principle and apply it to what you put, put in the offering plate just a few minutes ago? Absolutely, you can apply it to that. I believe there's other places in Scripture that would teach us that if we give to the Lord, He's going to give back. Malachi 3 is part of that. But contextually, this is not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about how the disciple is to interact with someone who's not been so generous, generous to them or harmful to them. And so we're to be forgiving, we're to be accepting, we're to be giving to a person who, in all seriousness, does not deserve it. And so if believers are to avoid a judgmental disposition toward others, we ought to be generous. We ought to understand that they're coming from a hard place. And when we act that way, Jesus gives us a promise here. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And so generally speaking, this characteristic will be replicated as we back to us as we flesh it out in our lives. So the disposition of Christ's disciple ought to be magnanimous, number one. This lofty spirit that is accepting, it's forgiving, it's generous toward others. Why? Because that's how Jesus has acted toward us. Right? He accepts you, he forgives you, and he's generous toward you. Disciples are not judgmental, but they do make judgments, which leads us to a second uh, thought, second idea, second part of this disposition of a disciple. We see here that they are moral. Verse 39, he says, Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Disciples not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. What is, what is he talking about here? Again, discipleship. What it means to be a disciple. One of the things we need to understand what it means to be a disciple is that as a disciple, you're to be a disciple maker. You're to pour your life and the life Jesus has poured into you into someone else. You're to invest in others. And that's what he's teaching these men as he stands there amongst the people. That disciples are to be disciple makers. The Great Commission in Matthew 28 would further uh, explain this. And this is what Jesus is modeling. So as he listens to it, he obeys the voice of the Father. Jesus teaches his disciples to do the same. These two verses, verses 39 and 40, reflect the way in which the spiritual life is imparted from one person to another. And so he utilizes two parabolic examples. He talks about a blind man leading a blind man. And in that, he's stressing the necessity of light. Can you imagine two blind men walking, one guy's leading another blind man? What would happen? Exactly what Jesus says here. They're going to fall into danger. They're going to fall into a pit. What is he saying here? There's a need for light. What makes a blind man blind? The inability to see light, right? And if you don't have light that's reflecting all the things around you, you can't see those things, those objects that are dangerous to you. So he's stressing the necessity here for light. And, and this disciple who's making a disciple needs to be able to see, needs to be able to see that these things are good and these things are bad. I need to avoid the things that are bad, and I need to move toward the things that are good. It calls for morality in our thinking, morality in our judgments, to know what's right and to know what is wrong. Second thing he talks about, second parabolic example is the teacher, a disciple learning from a teacher. This fully makes the point that Jesus is portraying. What he's saying here is the fully trained disciple is to resemble, to look like his or her teacher. Now in this culture, a teacher is, is incredibly important. There were no other resources. In Jesus' day, you couldn't, maybe some people could that were rich in a certain area of the world could go to a library, but the common person had no resources to go to learn from. So there's no online training. There's no YouTube to pull up. I mean, if, if I'm fixing something around my house, praise God for YouTube today because I'm watching videos to help me do that because I can do some stuff if I have a manual that says do this and now do this and do that. I can do whatever pretty much if I have a teacher. They didn't have that back then. So where did they learn? Who did they learn from? They learned from their teacher, from their rabbi, from someone who was modeling and emulating how their lives were to look. And so to do that takes a person who has the understanding of what is right and what is wrong. It calls for 
morals, for morality. So these disciples, for them to be able to point out and make other disciples, they needed to know what was right, what was spiritually good, what was uh, dangerous, and then to lead them to that. And you cannot point out the pitfalls without a biblical understanding of and a commitment to what is right and wrong. So here, here's what I want you to understand in that. As a follower of Jesus Christ, one who believes the Bible, this is your moral authority. Amen. Right? This is your moral authority. And when our culture says, no, 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 this over here is it's fine. I, I, I've been hesitant to say anything about this all day, but I watched Thor late. I know we had a conversation on the phone. I was deeply troubled by that movie yesterday. If you've seen the new Thor movie, if you haven't seen it, don't waste your time. Deeply troubled because Disney's taken another step to blur the lines in, in the area of morality. And so I watched the movie, and I'm sitting there thinking, we could look at this and be like, no big deal whatsoever, but they blurring the line in the area of gender and sexuality and all of these things. And we could say, as a Christian, no big deal, it's just movie, it's just Hollywood. But we have to, as, as believers, especially when it comes to our families, say, no, this is wrong when it comes to these things. The Bible's clear when it says that God created man and woman. There's two genders, not as many genders as we can imagine, but that's what our culture is saying today. And so we need, as Christians, to stand on the moral, biblical authority that we have and say, this is right and this is wrong. We have to have eyes that see. Third thing, I need to move on quickly here. If we're going to stand and be moral in our judgments, I believe it, it, it necessitates humility. That brings us to this third point. The word I want you to think of is meditative. Notice the hypocrisy that Jesus highlights in verses 41 and 42. He says, hey, if you're going to point out the speck in someone else's eye, you first need to take the log that's out of your own eye, which makes sense. The point is it's hypocritical to point out the sins in someone else's life while denying or even covering up the glaring sin that's in your life. So Jesus is again calling for an not calling for an abdication of responsibility. Instead, he's calling for us taking the responsibility to point out, to make judgments, but first making the judgment about ourselves. Be meditative. Be humble about yourself enough to realize that I'm not perfect. That, that there's glaring sin in my own life that I'm dealing with constantly as I walk before the Lord, as I walk with the Lord, as I sit under the teaching of his word, as I pray to his, to his Holy Spirit, and as I seek his face. As we think about that, a major part of discipleship is helping our brothers and sisters as they seek to put sin to death in their lives. That's what we're called to do. One of the blessings and benefits of being a part of a church, a local church, is that we get to experience that together. That we get to experience the, the iron sharpening iron type of thing that we see in Proverbs. That we're rubbing on each other in such a way that friction is rubbing off those rough edges of our lives that do not look like Jesus. And we're polishing the other parts of our life that do look like Jesus so that little by little we're becoming more and more conformed to the image of Christ. And that doesn't happen by itself, on its own. Again, you don't fall out of bed in the morning looking like Jesus. It takes work. It takes time. It takes relationships. And so we need to understand that as believers, we have a responsibility and a duty to rub on each other in such a way that we are helping one another become more and more like Jesus Christ. But we do that meditatively, humbly is a better word. Right? As I see the sin in my brother's life, I'm fully aware of the sin in my own life. It doesn't mean I don't address his, but it also means that on an ongoing basis, I am dealing with the sin in my own life, seeking to put it to death. And when someone else is speaking into my heart and it's my life, I'm willing to receive it. Here's what I've come to understand through experience in the church in 20 plus years of ministry, is that the vast majority of Christians are not willing to receive that. Hey, encourage me, bless me, uh, lift me up, 
make me feel good about myself. Love that when I come to church. But do not even dare take me to lunch and say, brother, what I'm seeing is not good. Who are you to speak into my life? I thought I was your pastor. Who are you to speak into my life? I thought I was your fellow brother in Christ. I thought I loved you. I thought you loved me. I thought we had this relationship where we could speak into one another's life for the good of both of us. No, 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 I don't want that. I just want you to encourage me. I just want you to bless me. I want you to be there for me when I'm down and out. But don't point out my sin. And I'm not going to point out your sin. Let's just act like there's no sin in our lives whatsoever. Let's put blinders on and just go through life, wallowing in our mess. That's what I see in typical Christian lives. I don't mean to paint a bad picture of us. I've just been doing this long enough. To, that's, I think that's where most people are. We want to put on the blinders and act like everything's okay. When Jesus is saying here, we need to point out the speck, but we also need to deal with our own situation. So we got to have both there. And so that brings us to a fourth point. I, I got off on a tangent I didn't mean to go on this morning. It's free. I promise, free. Fourth word is, is magisterial. So this idea that we need to make judgments. So as a disciple and a disciple maker, I, what we're seeing here is judgments are good and judgments are necessary. What's, a, what's the magistrate do in a society that makes judgments? The judge, right? If you're going before the county judge, you're, there's a ruling coming down. And so look what what we're seeing here in verses 43 and 45, Jesus is teaching that there is a right and there is a wrong. There's no gray ground, right? There's a good way, there's a bad way. And it's important that we make the distinction. And so while we know this biblically, we need to also recognize that our culture, it wants nothing to do with moral judgments. That was the point I was just making there. I think it's not just our culture. Our culture is the way it is because that's what human nature wants. We want to be left alone. Just let us be. Right? Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3. They would have preferred to hide in the bushes. Let God go do what he's doing, and we'll figure out how to make sense of this mess we got ourselves in, rather than being drawn to the light. But what does the Father do in that? Adam, Eve, where are you? Where are you? And they begin to come out of the bushes. We're hiding. Why? Why are you hiding? You've never hid before. We're naked. How do you know you're naked? You've never known that before. Right? How do you know? Who told you? Did you eat of that tree? Yes. But I only did it because that woman you gave me, she gave it to me. Whoa, 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 whoa. I only did it because that, that, that snake, that serpent, he gave it to me. What the father's doing in this is he keeps asking questions and asking questions. And little by little, he draws them out of the darkness into the light. Why? Not to curse them, even though the curse comes. The curse came because of sin, right? The curse is a result of disobedience. It's a result of rebellion. God the father said to Adam, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. That's the curse that had to come. But God the father is drawing them into the light, not to be this old man sitting on the throne with the big scepter and banging them on the head, but God draws them in the light, asking these questions so that he could redeem them. And that's what you see in the beautiful picture of him covering them, their nakedness with an animal at the end of Genesis 3. But he makes the judgment in that. But we want to be left alone. Verses 43 and 45, he talks about a good tree, a bad tree, and how good fruit comes from the good tree, and bad, tree, bad fruit comes from the good tree. And so he uses this horticultural picture to speak to an anthropological issue. He takes what's going on in nature and, and what's growing, and he said, this is exactly what happens in you as a man, as a human being. He points here that the empirical evidence makes it possible to know with complete certainty the kind of fruit that's going to come when you plant a seed. You see, this past spring, if you took a seed and you put it in the ground, an apple seed, in a few years, when that plant begins to grow from that seed and bear fruit, what do you think it's going to produce? Apples. Many of you have gardens because we like to play farm in Powhatan. I'm kidding. I'm grateful for y'all playing farm. I wish I could as well. 
What do you expect to find on the tomato plant that's in your garden? Lemons? Nectarines? Grapes hanging from that tomato plant? Not unless you're a really, really good genetic botanist or something. No, you're going to find tomatoes. Why? Because that's what the empirical evidence tells us. You plant this seed, you get that type of fruit. You plant this other seed, you get that kind of fruit. What's good is good. What's bad produces the bad. So the fruit matches the root. The point here is this. What is in a man will come out of that man. So we call a spade a spade. We call a sin a sin. We call righteousness righteousness. See, when a person comes into relationship with Jesus Christ, he or she, we know, is positionally transformed and made righteous. And yet, we also know that that same person has not yet been made practically righteous. They're still walking in what we call ongoing sanctification, being conformed more and more into the image of Christ. Therefore, some of the believer's life that have not yet been sanctified are visible to the believer, and that believer is working to address those issues seeking to put those things to death. In other cases, that same believer may not see those areas. They may be what we would call a blind spot that they're not aware of, or they may know that's an area of sinfulness but not want to address it. They like that pet sin. They pet it. It's fun until it bites them, right? But they're not willing to address it. So what do we do in that situation? Well, God in his grace has given each of us the church. And so we come alongside one another. Remember, Jesus is teaching his apostles how to make disciples. So that's the teaching for us. We need to understand that judgment for itself, not judgmentalism, but judgment for itself is good and a grace of God. Because I can't always see the blind spots in my life. But someone else might be able to. And I need to have the spiritual maturity and the spiritual vitality to say, That stings, but it's good. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Mm, Boy, you, you look wonderful. Your life is great. That person's not your friend. But the man or woman who will speak into your life and say, I love you, brother, brother, but I gotta say something. I gotta help you. That's a friend. Two major questions, and I'll land the plane. How should believers make judgments? R. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on this passage, offers five, I believe, really, really good suggestions. I'm going to give them to you. Then the second question uh, I'm getting from him as well, uh, and that second question is, how should believers offer the judgment? So how do we make the judgment, and how do we offer the judgment? Number one, uh, first suggestions on making the judgment. We do so humbly, right? Be aware of your own sinfulness and frailty. Hey, I haven't arrived yet, neither have you. So I want to humbly pr- uh, approach this judgment that I'm, I'm, I believe I need to make in a situation. Secondly, prayerfully, confession of your sin is necessary. So as you're seeing a need in someone else's, you're also prayerful about your own situation. Secondly, or thirdly, biblically, judgment must be in accordance with God's word, nothing more, nothing less, right? So we're not looking at it culturally. We're not looking at it personally. We're not looking at it um, relationally, biblically, what does the Bible say about this situation? And I'm only going to make a judgment on that. Nothing more, nothing less, right? I'm not adding my perspective. What does the Bible say about it, right? So much I could say, don't have time. Fourthly, lovingly, have the best interest in mind for the other person. And then fifthly, mercifully, mercifully, This is at the core of how Jesus engages with us, mercifully. So that's how we make the judgments, how we're contemplating the issue that's at hand in the life of another believer. How do we offer that judgment? Taking what we've seen, we've we've prayed, prayed through it, we've contemplated, we've wrestled with it. We know we need to engage that individual. How do we do that? Three things. We do so exemplarily. I can't even say this word now. My mouth's all mixed. Exemplarily. That's terrible. (laughs) Terrible. There's some words that I just really have a struggle saying. It's like I have not even been educated in my life. You know, it's terrible. 
We need to approach it in an exemplary way. There it is, exemplary way. Let your life, see, I'm making fun of myself. Let your life reflect the goodness you're calling out in of it. You know, it's hard. That's what Jesus is saying here. Man, how can you touch on the speck when you've got a log? You really have no moral ground to stand on if, you're, if your life's not exemplary. You really have no moral authority. And so that's a call for each one of us to live holy before the Lord. Not so we can make judgments, but, man, we reflect Jesus, and we can be an encouragement to others. Secondly, we do so privately. Matthew 18 would lay out a, a, a straightforward plan of how we should deal with conflict and when someone has sinned against us. And the first thing you always do is go to that person individually and have a conversation. I would say this, do it in person. Don't do it in text. Bless God, don't do it on Facebook. Please don't air your dirty laundry on social media. That, that's the worst thing you could ever do. Do it in person, face-to-face. Buy them a meal. Start there. And then work your way up. The goal in all of this, I haven't said it, but the goal in all of this is redemptive. It's never penal. We want to see them redeemed. We want to see them restored. We do not desire for them to be punished. Thirdly in this, we offer it gently and constructively. So the goal, as I said, is redemptive restoration, Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Going back to Dawn and Sally. Dawn and Sally were walking, obviously, at a guilty distance. Uh, the sweet fellowship that they had once enjoyed with the Lord, the sweet fellowship that they had with their local church, and even the sweet fellowship that they had enjoyed together as a married couple, that was, was gone. It was lost. Something was noticeably off. And everyone who knew and loved them could see it. It's clear as day. Those people wanted to step in. They wanted to help. But, man, how could they do so? I mean, what if Dawn and Sally were offended? What if they left the church? What if they moved away and just cut off all of their relationships because of their prying in their lives? Would it not be judgmental to bring into question their walk with the Lord? Would it not be judgmental to say, man, what I used to see in your marriage that was a great encouragement to me is, is no longer there? What, what's happened? Would that not be seen as being judgmental? And so the situation was difficult, just as all situations are difficult. As a brother or sister in Christ, we want to step in. We want to help because we clearly see the danger that the person may be heading toward. And at the same time, we don't want to hurt their feelings. We don't want to, to harm them. We don't want to cause them pain. We don't want to cause them sh suffering or shame. We don't want to come across as being judgmental. And so what's the easiest thing to do? Nothing. Turn a blind eye. Look the other way. Act like it's not happening. You, sh you know, you interact like you always have. You have them over for dinner, and, and you're just trying to move on as you've always moved on. But it's clear that they're not in a good spot maritally. They're not in a good spot relationally within the church, and you just look the other way. How many times does that happen? That was a temptation for this church and small group. I wonder, is that the disposition a disciple should have? I would give you this answer, no. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 10 Verses 23 through 25 says, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Two phrases I want to pull out of that in conclusion this morning. When he talks about the confession of our hope, I believe he's speaking of the covenant that we've made with one another as fellow church members. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. That's our covenant as a church body. As a local church, we've covenanted together to walk in unity, to walk in fellowship, to walk in holiness. The consideration of how to stir up one another, I believe, speaks of our willingness to get involved and not let a brother or sister walk at a guilty distance. Let us consider how to stir up one another. And I'm not going to leave that to chance. But I'm going to step in where it's difficult. You see, again, Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And so many times these wounds of a friend are necessary. The pastors in this 
small group in this church here that Dawn and Sally had been members of for many, many years heeded the words of Jesus, and they humbly confronted their friends. They refused to leave them alone in their sin, but instead they sought to win them back. They sought to see them restored. The confrontation, as you can imagine, was not easy. It was difficult. It was painful. It was messy. But in the end, Dawn and Sally repented and returned to fellowship with the Lord. They returned to fellowship with the church. They even got to experience a return in fellowship as husband and wife. Marriage was better than it had ever been, definitely in years. All of this was because brothers and sisters were willing to step into a hard space and call sin what it is, call something bad what it is, and draw them into the light. See, the goal in this kind of confrontation is always redemptive. The disposition of a disciple, it should be these four things we've seen this morning. Magnanimous, it should be moral, it should be meditative as we humbly approach it, and then it should be magisterial as we understand that judgment needs to be made. Spade needs to be called a spade. This morning, in this message, what I've tried to do is, is just reflect what the Word of God says. But I believe it's calling us as a church to take church discipline serious. Now, we hear that word and we immediately jump to, we're excommunicating people. Not at all. That's all way down the process. You know where church discipline starts? The teaching of the Word of God, as you sit under it. That's where church discipline begins. As you learn, what does the Word say about how I'm to live my life? And now you're aligning your life with where the Bible lives. That's where it begins. And then when we get off kilter a little bit, bless God, we've got someone who loves us enough in the church to say, brother, let's get back in line. Sister, let's get back in line. Hey, you're following back a little bit. Let's pick up the pace. Or maybe you're getting a little too far ahead. Let's, let's draw back and make sure we're all going together. But we're moving together. That's what we're calling to. That's what we're being called to this morning in this. Is that we'd be willing to step into those spaces in one another's lives and love each other enough to make a disciple. Where are you at in that? Confrontation's not fun. You know the thing that I hate the most? Staff evaluation, maybe not the most in all of life, but one of the things I, I, I dread is staff evaluations. I don't want to have to st- sit across the, the table from someone I really love and say, mm, you're not cutting the mustard here. Could we step it up? I wish we could always say, you're awesome. And many, most times I really can say that about our staff. But I don't, like those, I don't like those situations, and neither do you. I don't like having to, as a Christian or as a pastor, uh, come to a brother in our church or someone I, that's a friend in, in my past or you know, acquaintance now and say, let's talk about something. But at times, that's necessary. If I'm going to be faithful to Jesus and my calling as a Christian, I need to step into those spaces. And then on the flip side, when it's reversed, I need to sit there under it and receive it. Amen? This morning, I don't know where they hit you, but I believe it'll hit you in one or two spots. You need to step in it or you need to receive it. And it's going to change as you walk with Jesus the rest of your life. We need to do both. Amen? This morning, you may not be a follower of Jesus, but we've heard about how good he is. And the goodness of God, we've sang about, we've celebrated in the Lord's Supper, we've talked about it in this passage of Scripture, the goodness of God calls sinners to himself, right? Genesis 3, I laid that out, I think, pretty clearly, that God wants to walk you into the light, and he does it graciously, and he does it mercifully. And this morning, if you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to invite you to respond to him. I hope you've heard enough of the gospel, but I'll tell you again what the gospel is. God's made you. He made you for himself. He loves you. Sin has destroyed that. It's broken you beyond repair except for God. And God has made a way through his son Jesus. His death on the cross paid the full penalty for your sin so that you could be forgiven. That righteousness thing imputed to you and you get off scot-free. All because of Jesus. This morning, if you'll just call upon him as Lord and Savior, he will forgive you and redeem you. This morning, that may be for some of you, but for most of us in this room, what we need to be responding to is, am I going to step in and be willing to set under discipline from a brother or sister, or am I going to be willing to give it, right? In my family, in my home, in my small group, 
I'm not calling for a bunch of judgmental people walking around with self-righteousness saying, that's a sin, that's a sin, that's a sin. No, no, no. That's us walking humbly and holy before the Lord and calling one another to that as well. We're about to have, in just a matter of weeks, two months, an emphasis, a spiritual emphasis at the end of, of September uh, where we're going to set under the teaching of the word for multiple days in a row and we're going to worship together and we're going to pray together and we're going to uh, maybe even fast together. And it's going to be a great time of God calling us out to himself and spiritual renewal. But why do we need to wait to the end of September? Let's get started today. So let's pray. Father, you are good to us and um, we are unworthy of it. But we are so gracious or so grateful for your grace in our lives, for your goodness. Lord, I pray that your word this morning, as it has been taught, has been heard. I pray that your Holy Spirit has pierced it upon our hearts, that it's been clear and understandable. God, I know that you are a good God and a gracious God and that you're calling us to walk with you and we just simply need to respond. And so this morning, I pray that we do that. I pray for those who are not in relationship with the Lord, maybe online or sitting here in this room. Maybe we'll watch or listen to us in the days ahead. God, that you would call them to faith in Jesus if they're not a Christian. That you'd help them to understand the weightiness of their sin, the condemnation that they're under, and in midst of all of that, the forgiveness that you offer. It's full and it's free that they would respond in faith. For us as believers, we want to walk in the light. We want to grow and mature in our faith. And I pray that we would understand more fully and be more appreciative of the gift that you give us in the church, that we are the ones who disciple one another. Spur us ourselves on and stir up faith within us and stir up a hatred and a detesting of sin. Pray that it would become more and more clear. Lord, that we would be mature enough to set under scrutiny at times, mature enough to offer kind and gracious judgment, all for the sake of being conformed into the image of Jesus. It's a good thing. Lord, in that, I pray that we would be willing to stand and call sin, sin in our culture. Not arrogantly, not angrily, but Lord, as you did there in the temple area, overturning money-changing tables because it cluttered the house of God. Lord, help us this morning to sense your spirit, what you would have us to do, and respond in faith and in obedience. This is our prayer in Jesus' name.